Hi, my name is Brian Dalton. I am the CEO of Altius Minerals Corporation. It's been a few months since I was on this platform, probably close to six months actually. There's been a lot of really neat things happen in our business over that period of time. There's been some not so neat things happen geopolitically and globally, but for us as a long-term investor, I'm very proud to say that many of the things we would have mused about the last time I was here in terms of potential option value realization, uh, we're getting some really strong signals and feel excellent about our business today. Can't wait to update everyone. Brian, good to see you. It hasn't been six months, far too long, um, but you work on a different time frame to, to, to me. So uh, I wish you'd come on sooner. Um, but look, you're right. A few things have happened since we last spoke. Um, Russia, Ukraine, not, not least of all in there, but um, that's affected market conditions. So um, I want to talk a little bit about royalty companies, investing in royalty companies. You tell me regularly that royalty companies are immune to um, rising costs, inflation, uh, and everything else that, that is, is thrown at these mining companies. Is that still true? Yeah, for the most part. The factors in our business, broadly speaking, are you know what's the economic margin. And in the mining world right now, that's been severely threatened because we're seeing big jumps in the capital cost to uh, build new mines and big increases in operating costs um, and somewhat reflected in some commodities at least so far in in higher prices so we get the benefits of those higher prices but we don't take the hit for those increased costs so generally speaking yeah we're we're, we're pretty neat type of inflation hedge i believe right okay and um producers fine i can, I can understand that developers Potentially, you're not so immune because I mean, some of the things we're seeing going on at the moment are um, commodity prices on the up, uh, equity prices on the down, divergence of paths there. I mean, one, why do you think that is, and two, what's it do for the development plays in your in your uh, portfolio? We would have said a year ago that we expected a big surge of investment in new development, so big companies, small companies alike, and. That was simply because we thought prices had finally reached the point where there was incentivization. There was sufficient price in the market to fund the capital investments and the future operating costs and generate a sensible return for the owners of the project. Uh, looking a year back now, we just haven't seen it. That capital investment never happened. And so we, you know, we got something wrong. So, we, you know, we, it's on us to go and find out what that was. And it didn't take that much. The reality is, is that costs have increased so quickly, uh, particularly over the past year. Some of my mining company contacts tell me they think CapEx realistically is you know, 20 to 30% higher year over year. Wow. Uh, operating costs are more plainly stated because they're stated by the quarter. Those have certainly gone up. And the reality is, is that the price that's out there now, which is similar to what it would have been a year ago in most cases, just doesn't do it anymore. So that the the price that you need has moved up faster than prices have moved up. So we've gone back into disincentivization, and um, you know, no end in sight at this point. But it's, it's really causing a bit of a there's a deer in the headlights moment, I suppose, happening in the mining industry. Even if you have a good project and you might want to proceed, it's just so hard to get a sense of what the cost might be, and everyone's afraid to make the decision or to report to their shareholders what their estimated capital cost looks like, because it's just at the, in this kind of environment, you've got so much risk of 
of everything being wrong. But it's also incredibly bullish on the other side. Like the longer we go without investing in replenishing um, production, I mean, there's lots of mines going down just because resources are, are, are winding down. But the longer we go without making these investments, which take years from the time they get decided upon until you actually get the product, you know, ultimately, I believe the more bullish the outlook um, is, like again, this is just going to be in the absence of a good steady investment flow to match up, match declines, and just to keep up with incremental demand growth. So forget like, you know, incremental extra demand from things like electrification, just sort of a normal world. We've got to replace all the mines that we're losing and we're not doing it. Like, wow. Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a few factors at play here, though, right? So this this incentive price is increasing all the time as, as cost goes up, right? So you know, what, what, why would you go and mine if you're not going to make money? Um, but there's a, there's a few kind of um, there's a conversation going on out there with regards to the effects of um, ESG labeling by funds by Whatever, whatever groups are kind of pushing ESG agenda, and then there's a, a bunch of people saying, "Well, that that's what's causing all the damage here, right? You go woke, you go broke." Brian um, is a phrase that's thrown at us a lot, and yet, yet CEOs like you tell me all the time, if if companies aren't taking care of that stuff, nothing's going ahead. I mean, where, where, where do you sit on that in that argument? Uh, it's here to stay. Like again, just look at that that point where we're at now, where really a lot of decisions to invest have to be made. So you've got to go through your capital cost estimate and your future operating cost investments, and you've got to make a call as to whether or not that investment makes sense. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, the cost of the carbon you might produce, in addition to whatever primary commodities you know, you're trying to produce, wasn't even part of the math. It certainly is now. So it has to be factored in. And so that's how I think it manifests economically and fundamentally. So when a mining company tells you that, um, you know, decarbonization and things I've got to do with my existing operations, you know, really need to be factored in here and costed, well, that's really what they're getting at. There's a real cost to generating carbon. It ain't going away. And it's just a new reality. And that's part of the cost structure and ultimately has to be part of the price. Right. Okay. So that's the, I guess that kind of sits on the environmental side of, of, of ESG. But what, what's driving that? It's kind of like we're kind of, as a society, kind of creating a whole set of parameters under which it wants miners to operate, but it's preventing miners from operating. It, it, you know, can those two things well, there, ever work side by side? Here, right? There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I won't go as far as to call it an enigma, but it's, it's an irony in that. When you look at capital allocation budgets coming out of the big mining companies right now, A, that, that whole narrative around big shareholder capital returns and that discipline, that's persisted. So that's competing with growth capital. Uh, they're all being told, on the other hand, you know, IEA and everybody else, look, we need more metals or we can't electrify, we can't decarbonize unless you give us more metals. And then the mining companies are coming back and saying, well, we're too busy to invest in growth because we're spending all of our time and money investing in decarbonization. So we don't actually have time to give you the metals to decarbonize. So you see the whole circular part mm. of this. It all sorts itself out, of course. And again, I just think it's incredibly bullish. It's another cost pressure 
that the mining industry faces to win these metals that the world tells it it needs. That cost pressure ultimately has to manifest in price. Okay, so if if you want if you want stuff the way we used to do it, it can be cheaper. But there's a big part of society saying we want greener, cleaner, fill in the blank commodities. Uh, so therefore, there's a there's a way that the companies are now being made made to work. And between that point um, and stuff coming out of the ground, there needs to be an incentive price to allow the companies to actually do do it the way that society is asking them to do it. So. I guess that, that that's that's the that's the irony as as, as you call it. Um, and, and beyond that, like other things, like we use the term geological inflation, but you know, yeah. to get the increment of new metals that are required, you know, we've got to go as an industry to the next best set of deposits, which are by definition inferior to the last generation. Yeah. Typically, it means lower grade. So, a you've got to move just more rock when it's got lower grades. Uh, to generate the same amount of, of new production. Well, moving more rock and busting more rock means more water usage, more power usage. So, you know, these are carbon intensive activities as well. So it all becomes very linked. The reality is I don't buy for a second that the current price that's being offered for copper will in any way, shape or form result in it being delivered in the quantities that the world says it needs it at. Saying just so, just, there's, there's a standoff, yeah, and it's right there now. There's, here's your price. Bring us copper, and they're saying that price, no chance. We can't do it. But that's so, what that's what the right, miners always yeah. say, right? The, <laughs> it's, it's never enough. But we're at some of the highest copper prices we've seen for a long, long time. Surely that can't be right. It is though, because when we last incentivized big slugs of copper production, the incentive price, like the capex, the amount of capital per pound of new production that a mine could bring on was running at around $2 a pound. So you spend $2, uh, you know, you would get a pound of new annual copper production that you could give to the world. Well, in fast forward 12 years, 15 years or whatever we're up to, now everyone's screaming at the industry, you've got to come with this copper, we need it, we need it. The CapEx per pound is $8, right? So that project, that's because we've had the grades have dropped so much and other costs have gone up. Government wants more, right? More royalties and taxes, more water, more energy. All of this is required and it has a higher cost to win. So the mining companies are not lying. We just want higher, higher prices. They actually look at the numbers and let's face it, at heart, they want to build mines. That's what their whole reason for being, you know, despite the discipline around shareholder capital returns and whatnot. Any of these mining company executives, what they want to do is preside over building big mines. At its heart, and they look at the numbers, and they just get this sense of if we try it at this price, we're literally going to get our heads handed to us. So we are gambling really big, and spending that capex today on the hope that the market actually gets it right. And you know we're dealing with six or eight or ten dollar copper when they're in their payback periods, or you know they're the next victims in the in the trash bin. So who's going to win the war between the kind of demand demand and, and supply? Because in, in a way, you're talking about supply destruction because the price, incentive price isn't getting there quick enough and, you know, mines will, will turn off and obviously restarting mines is an expensive business in itself and it's lower grade and you've got to go deeper and all, all of those wonderful things versus the demand 
fundamentals um, which are there. We're saying we, we've got infrastructure projects in Asia, in Europe, in the US, um, which suggest that we need lots of, you know, all, all the kind of battery metals. We need the, the, the copper for infrastructure play more broadly. Um, we've, and we've got these OEMs who've built these multi-billion dollar infrastructure programs saying, well, these are the cars we're now going to supply. That, that's your choice, choice of one, battery. Um, that, or do you think it'll be supply, sorry, demand destruction based on the fact that people just don't have the available capital. They don't have disposable income discretionary spend to spend on these things, which we're going to be forced to buy, as given there's only one option of, of type uh, of car. And what happens? Look, history tells us that this condition can persist, you know, as long as the balance holds, but it takes a tiny, tiny increment of, uh, you know, of, a, of, a, of an imbalance, of a deficit. And things typically react very strongly. You've got two great examples active in the broader mining world right now. You've got uh, lithium and potash, both of which at this point are essentially being rationed, right? The, the limit to demand is supply in both markets. You're if talking you Russia and Belarus on the potash, is that, is that? Yeah, but it was getting tough as even before that. Right. That, that just became, that just made it crazy altogether. Right. Nobody predicted 40% of the potash market would get destroyed that quickly. But even six months ago, just food shortages were driving up margins for farmers to such a degree that they just couldn't get enough potash to lay on the ground. They're just producing it fast as they can, needing to replenish nutrients. And, you know, it's been a long time since there's been any incentivization in supply in potash. So the, the whole, you know, Russia, Belarus thing, that, that was just insult to injury we were already in trouble in that space before that and in lithium i think it's the same thing that you know if you're producing uh, or if you're manufacturing batteries and cars and you want to get that market share now because now it's happening you know you're seeing it that that it's uh you pay up and it's essentially boiling down to to rationing in both markets so we're not there in copper there's actually this year projected to be a tiny supply surplus. Um, so everything is kind of running along balance. It's about two years from now when you've got this huge drop off, a whole bunch of mines just going to crash all of a sudden. Now, two years is nothing. Like if we made the investment decisions 12 months ago to replace those mines, we wouldn't have it in time. And we still haven't made it. So Maybe there is like, you know, this is a massive, the biggest recession we've ever seen and will cause demand destruction on a scale that we've, you know, never really encountered in, in big recessionary environments, um, in which case the current production level we're forecasting is sufficient. Um, so that just assumes traditional GDP growth, you know, and, and the demand that accompanies that uh, is all about to be turned on its head that we're going to go into massive negative global GDP growth. We just won't need as much copper today as we need, or tomorrow as we need today. Never really seen that play out, but who knows? But then there's the other narrative. You've got this other side, most of it from government saying that we want to do all these things. And when you add up what all those things require, it actually points to a huge surge in demand that will be, you know, in, in terms of magnitude, that potential surge over the baseline 
you know, starting to stack up there with the kinds of amounts that extra amounts that China would have consumed in the last cycle to urbanize. Um, and we all know what happened when you had that increment of, of demand over and above what everyone expected take place. And again, these things are set at small swings one way or the other. But again, here, I think that I, I do think that lithium, potash, those types of things are harbingers here that we're at that part of the cycle where the investment it's been so long since there's been investment, you know, more than 10 years now, broadly speaking, that across the complex, you're just starting to see it happen and happen. You know, demand continues its normal trajectory. In some cases, it's big spikes in demand. And but the key is follow the supply. There is none. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's kind of slightly slight tr- troubling and uncertain times in, in that sense. But the 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 general tick is upwards. What, whatever wobbles we're experiencing now, the general tick is upwards in terms of that um, the d- demand fundamentals for well, fill in the blank uh, commodity, right? That's our thesis, and we're sticking to it. There's <laughs> lots of volatility ahead. Uh, yeah, there always has, there always will be. But um, as far as the positioning we would have done in the bottom of the last cycle. And our viewpoints on, you know, what it translates to into the fullness of a cycle, you know, that's that's intact. I'll I'll take you back in that last big up cycle. When you look at it, you know, we would have been sixty cent off the bottom copper. We would have peaked into the fours probably in you know eleven twelve. There were periods of time within that. I, I gave a presentation or sat with a group the other day. I saw one spot and I was like, what was that? Like that was just, oh, I think it was oh maybe 07 ish like copper hit four bucks and then six months later it was 250 like imagine living in that moment like that one must have been huge like that's what the world is ending now it quickly resumed and went on about its track then it went down again for the global financial crisis and then went back up again what was amazing to me in that room which was full of analysts is nobody knew what that was nobody can remember what that was that four dollar 250 dip nobody can point to like what was the crisis of the day that that caused that to happen noise noise that's funny, that's funny. um I, I love it we better talk about your company though um so, before we kind of get on to it because so 2021 was 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 good for you and i do want to talk about um uh the F- fairfax okay so um you you mentioned something there which i kind of kind of kind of conflated or kind of Merged together with uh, ESG, which is which is carbon credits. That, by sounds of what you said, you, you believe that is the next big thing uh, in this in this market. Um, and although it can be wrapped up in the E of ESG, it, it, it in itself um, quite meaningful because there's there's there's, there's going to be some good stuff and some not good stuff because it's a fairly early nascent industry. Um, where not not only the people in it, but the people investing in it won't actually know what good good looks like. I mean, have you got a view on that? Um, are you starting to understand it? Is it something that you would be looking to spend more time with? We've been learning, and we've been learning in an, in an interesting way. We've been learning through our mining business, right? We've watched the spread between high purity uh, and low purity iron ore really widen out over the past four or five years. And that's ultimately a function of the cost of the carbon that a steel mill produces when it runs high versus low quality material. So you've seen that spread open up economically, but that's a carbon price, quite frankly, right there. 
And, you know, numerous other examples we mentioned earlier, the mining companies all focusing investment on decarbonization of existing operations because they see the cost of the carbon they're producing as a, as a, as a real threat uh, to their operating costs going forward, never mind just their you know, acceptability to investors. So, you know, who hasn't at this point pledged net zero? Um, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the car companies five or six years ago, you know, this kind of were there, we're kind of not. And then it just happened and it was over. Everyone had to do it. So it was, it was almost boring at that point, right? Everyone's converting to, to electric vehicle. But anyway, what we see here is that there's always going to be a certain component of what industry, all types of industry, not just mining uh, do that will produce carbon. And you're in a world where the world is committing to net zero. And it's even, right? Everyone's got to do it at this point. Um, some will do it later than others, but the pressures are pretty, uh, pretty universal and, and overwhelming. And so capturing carbon, capturing it, actually sequestering some of that, what we produce is part of the equation. And that part that can't be, you know, that you can't pull out of your operation, you can't make it go away from your operation. You eventually, you, you've ultimately got to fund a project somewhere else that captures that that component, and it has a real cost. And we don't know what that that cost is at this point. We don't know how to price this stuff going forward. It's all very nascent, but I do, in heart, believe that it will be a gigantic market. And again, it's linked already to all of the things we do. But where I get excited about is that it's ultimately science capturing it's the you know the company we're invested in is called invert and i love the name and first when i had this whole business described to me i said this is the inverse of what we do in mining mm. you know there we bust stuff up and try to you know liberate minerals from uh from uh you know rock and here's a situation where you're actually trying to recapture them and put them back in the ground again like, you know it's complete inverse of of, of mining in that mm. regard but there's a science to it. And so our teams, I think, are well suited to figure out what's a real project and a, a realistic project that has scientific merit to it versus one that isn't. Um, and it's more than just the science and the raw economics. It also goes to, can you license the project? Can you get environmental improvement? improvement? Like it's, These projects to capture carbon aren't really any different than getting a mining project permitted. They're still going to be essentially industrial projects to mm. some degree and i think there we can also add some value so i don't have more that i can really point to and tell you how big the market will be or how it all plays i just know there will be a tremendous amount of of, of economic um, value if you will assigned to sequestering carbon i think we're in a really good position to figure it out but at this point it's just that we you know we've dipped our toes we buy in that the market will be big and it will be real. And we're just figuring out how to use what we know and what we do and our expertise to to see if there's a place for us here. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's invert private. I think the private company may go public at some point, right? Um, let's, and, and, and like, I'd love to talk to you more uh, uh, about that. I'm just conscious of your time because we were speaking for a long time before we actually turned the cameras on because it was just too much fun. Um, let's talk about the company, um, if, if I may. Uh, 2021, good year, sort of 84 million bucks of, of um, 
attributable royalty revenue and adjusted earnings, 32 million. So it, that was a good year. But then you also, um, announced the exercise of warrants, um, held by Fairfax. Like what, what did that bring in? Well, that was a bit of a wash because we had a, um, a preferred share uh, with Fairfax. So they put $100 million. It was quasi-debt, essentially. Right, okay. $100 million with us several years ago, which we went on to use to fund the purchase of half our potash royalties and uh, seed capital for the renewables business, uh, some of the Labrador iron ore position. And so we were paying interest on or a coupon on those preferred shares. Right. And they had a warrant as well. And so when it was structured, it was structured as a bit of a match. So the warrant exercise price was to generate exactly the same amount of proceeds as would be required to redeem the PREF. So Got that's it. ultimately what happened here. Okay. So yeah, they invested hundred million, if you will, exercising warrants, but then we turned around and paid them, you know, bought ourselves out of the PREF. So we save, you know, net, we save, we have more shares issued. We have Fairfax as a long-term shareholder through the, through the warrants. Uh, but we also have a big chunk of debt that's left our balance sheet and the ongoing service payments associated with that. Right. So that's just washed its face. Kind of a, think of it as a convertible. If you think yeah. about it as a convertible five years ago, yep. that's essentially what's happened. And it's gone really well for both sides. Obviously the share price went up over strike price for, for Fairfax. Um, and for us, the investments that we made with their money, hmm. you know, across the board, we don't even know what the return on investment than that hundred million would have been. But it was a good, it was a good, good deal at the time. But just pretty clear, doubled and triples on our investment across the board. Absolutely right. Okay, we're yeah, like I said, you know, up heading towards twenty bucks, right? <clears throat> uh, share price, it's all good. Um, so just really, really clear for people is that we had some um, messages sent in some confusion whether that was an extra hundred million bucks on, on the bottom line. It, it's it's not. Okay, so you, you may been used. You want to look at it that way. We took in the exercise proceeds, but then we immediately turned around and uh, we bought back 100 million in debt, if you will. Right. So, so there we gone. go. It, yeah, wipe, wipe his nose, balance sheet a little bit tidier. That's all good. Cleaner balance. Absolutely. Um, name of the game. So um, with regards to you, obviously did you did well last year, and we've we've talked about the kind of economic environment at the moment. So, as you say, you're you're kind of slightly immune, mostly um, when it comes to um, the effects on the producers, the the royalties that are producing for you at the moment. The developers, it's kind of wait and see, what, you know, what what that does in terms of does it delay things, does it um, change change things anyway in terms of you know the, the time and time is money equation for you um but with the with the cash you aren't generating what, what are you what are you looking at at the moment because if you, if you look from 2015 to now you know copper iron ore lithium potash energy renewable energy it, it, you you know we know we know what you're about the makeup of what you're about does that change going going forward or you know if we just talked about carbon credits and similar is that of more of interest to you? There'll always be changes and shifts, but you know, I think it'll be incremental and gradual. Okay. I still see those core businesses, the copper, the potash, you know, for, for now, what we're seeing are really good signs of uh, or signals from operators that those are going to grow. Chapada stream, you know, Lundin announced a couple of months ago, a big new discovery at that's much higher grade than the, the current resource at Chapada. Um, we think that is a superior investment opportunity once all the boxes are ticked there and we see growth from that. Potash, both of the operators have signaled in the past few weeks um, ramp ups of production. So 
So, you know, that steady growth of the core platform um, that we predicted and hoped or we invested for, I guess, or hoped for when we invested, we're certainly seeing the right signs there. Um, big decision coming up later this year from Champion on the Cami project. Uh, we have our royalty income right now from Rio Tinto's IOC mine in the Labrador trough. Champion in recent months is really, you know, going for it in terms of producing the absolute purest form of iron ore that you can in the world and to be a real leader in, um, in um, you know, the providing material that you can essentially produce uh, carbon-free uh, steel from. Well, the Cami project is part of that mix. We own the royalty there, so uh, we're hopeful that uh, they make that go-ahead decision. Anglo announced the discovery of a new gold deposit on a project we hold royalty on. You know, looks like pretty decent resource, loads of upside in Nevada. They're really gung-ho on this project. We're talking it up publicly. Um, so again, just those things. Now, as far as new initiatives go, some of them are not so new. I guess we, we made the decision to go from coal to reinvest into forming a renewable energy business that would be going back, I guess, probably four years or more now. Mm. Uh, that company has grown and developed. It went public last year, had a really busy year deploying capital. It's up to, I don't know, 16 royalties or something now. Should be cash flow positive this year for, you know, you know pretty quick order. And it's got an amazing pipeline ahead of it uh, of new investment opportunity. There's a place where I think we have tons of appetite to continue to, uh, at the minerals level, invest capital down to our renewables division to help fund right. its growth. Okay, because no I okay, I was going to ask in terms of what, what, given the, um, the renewables business, Altis Renewables is a standalone entity. Now, do you keep? We own sixty percent of it, so it's you know, and we consolidate it on our balance sheet. Right. So how you deal with it? Okay, fine. And. Is there any kind of future upside for um, Altis Minerals shareholders on, on that entity I mean, in terms of what, what your plans are for it or, again, a slow incremental change on that? No, I, I still see it as a business that's in very much, it's probably even at an inflection point in terms of growth mode. Like It's gone from trying to introduce a new product into a whole sector to slowly getting adoption to now looking like it can really do things to take on scale. So for now, anyway, we're, we're still very content to participate in that and to help it and to fuel it along because it's just not the time. This is a business that's really day one, but I genuinely believe it becomes a very substantial business. And, and I think that royalty financing becomes a real part of the renewable energy financing story, big picture. So anyway, yeah, no, no question there. We're, we're, if, if the question is, are we, you know, are we ready to divest? Uh, is it buy, sell, or hold? It's buy, buy, buy. Okay, okay. And just just on that, you can because you're gonna hit you hit a, a mark there with regards to the coal. I think like the beginning of last year, you there was you know coal litigation hearings with Alberta power plants, etc. But sorry, I can't remember, was it no the Alberta government? I should say, is that all that gone away, or is what's happened to that? Uh, no, it's not gone away. Um, we just had a decision that didn't go our way though. Um, so at, at heart here, what it is, is when we bought all these coal royalties in Alberta and then the Alberta and Canadian governments changed legislation that said no more coal burning by a certain date. 
which was way before what it would have been uh, at the time of our purchase. At the time of our purchase, there was defined dates for these things to close and we bought on that basis. And then they changed their minds and they brought it forward. So we argued that that amounts to an effective expropriation. You, you know, you changed, uh, you changed the game here and you changed the ground rules and you basically just sterilized 20 years of our expected investment return horizon. Mm. So we, we, the, the crux of the argument was it was an effective expropriation. Yeah, the crux, there we go. It was an effective expropriation in that our rights and interests were sterilized and, you know, we weren't compensated for it. Hmm. Now, under Canadian law, and I guess probably Commonwealth law, uh, or in Canadian in particular, that's a tricky one, right? Because usually for an expropriation to have happened, the expropriator has to have acquired a beneficial interest. I mean, that's one of the key tests. You can't say that somebody took something from you if they haven't gotten something from it. So, no, our, our rights, uh, you know, our, our underlying coal licenses weren't taken, but they were sterilized. And the current law in the books in Canada says that there must be a beneficial interest acquired um, for it to have been a, a de facto expropriation. And the fair bit of conflicting law on this issue. And so we waded right into a, an interesting spot. Um, so basically the, the recent ruling said that on the base face of the current law, um, you know, we can't see that the governments took a beneficial interest here, but we've appealed on the basis that, you know, we, we think our arguments were strong that the governments acquired, if not a direct, you didn't take the licenses and put them in their pocket, you know, they acquired benefits. So they would have acquired benefits in terms of reduced healthcare. They, they quantified this in terms of, you know, getting to stand on the stage at the Paris uh, meetings to talk about, you know, banning coal, those kinds of things There were um, general benefits acquired, uh, put it that way. And I know that all that sounds a bit silly, but it's actually, uh, there's a case before uh, Supreme Court of Canada as we speak, it's just been heard and we're waiting on a hearing and it goes to that. Do you need a beneficial interest or is a government acquiring a general interest? Mm. Billions of dollars in healthcare savings, for example, um, and completely you know, sterilizing someone's rights or prior interests, uh, does that meet the test? So we've appealed and we should hear fairly soon on what the new law in Canada or, or the clarified law in Canada will be. So that's way more than I actually wanted to talk about on this topic because we never guide shareholders to you know, get excited about us because of, of you know, litigation, but just to clear the air, um, everything essentially at this point hinges now on that Supreme Court right. Canada okay. decision. No, if, if, that goes, if that goes the other way, you know, we probably won't proceed any further. If it says that a general interest is sufficient, uh, I think our hand just got extremely strong. Okay. Well, there you go. You're very binary. Very binary. Very binary. literally the phrase I was going to use. Okay. And um, just just on, obviously, your you quarterlies have um, come out, you know, was it 26.5 million on the uh, Royal Re Royalty Revenue and 8.8, 8, nearly 9 on the, um, on the adjusted earnings, which, 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 which is all good. Um, it, it's... I guess it comes back to the case of, you know, where do you think this goes 
from here for you guys is this strong, steady growth of a billion dollar uh, Canadian uh, company. Um, and, you know, it, it expects to say more, more of the same. Or do you think that there's some, there's some kind of market dynamic in the, in the, that is going to sort of change your fortunes given what you've chosen? Cause I, we, we speak a lot to precious metal royalty companies, right? Um, they've got amazing multiples. <laughs> Amazing multiples, sometimes incredulous multiples. You guys, do you think you're fairly priced at a billion bucks? You know, it's hard to be too whiny. We were $16 and went to 25 and now we've kind of come back into the 20-ish range. But again, a lot of that, if you just look at the price moves in potash and even the base metals over that period, iron ore over that period, rebounds in the bottom for, you know, sort of fourth quarter, whatever crisis that was that month, um, you know, it looks pretty good, but I do believe it doesn't appreciate those things I was talking about earlier, the new discovery at Chapata, the potential upside from Cami, the big discovery at Silicon and, and, you know, clear signaling by the operators of the potash mines that they're going to be ramping up by 20 or 30% near term, just real fundamental long-term um, business growth stuff. When we're buying in that down cycle, and I, I know I harp on this, but when we're buying, we're selecting for something. And it's obviously operations that can you know, weather the whole cycle and, and, and do well, but that particularly uh, have the geological potential, either widely identified or believed by Altius, uh, that supports expanded production rates and longer lives than you know, we, what, what it looks like we're buying at that time. So that's the key, and that's where we're excited because we're seeing those signals. The resources have grown. You're getting close to incentive. You're there in potash. You're there in lithium. The mines are getting built. Our royalties are there. We'll get there in copper. Um, so I guess when, when I look at it, I'm obviously bullish on some metal, so I think we could get some really crazy royalty numbers as those prices have to go to where they have to go to incentivize. But it's not what we really get focused on. What we get focused on is the broader portfolio growing uh, in the fullness of time, mainly on the strength of, uh, of free optionality, no capital cost exposure type optionality. And in longer term than that, uh, a belief, an underlying belief that we will get to incentivization and mines within our portfolio will grow. And then we'll go beyond it and we'll overbuild. And the industry, because the shareholders will be screaming at these mining companies at that time that they're idiots for not growing their businesses. And look how fast that guy's growing. You're so slow. And you know, they'll be, you know, harangued essentially by the investors to grow, 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 and grow they will. And um, it'll get overdone. And then balance sheets will implode again. And then, you know, we'll just step in and do it all over again. Might, might be 10 years out from that point, but it, it, it comes. So we just do what we're supposed to do. We do what the market is telling us to do in our view, which generally means exactly the opposite of what it's trying to scream at you today. It, do, it, makes, it makes sense, absolutely, because... You know, doesn't repeat it rhymes and all of that, all those wonderful cliches. Um, we 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 understand 
buying behavior, consumer behavior, and investing behavior. Um, and yeah. <laughs> well, look, I talked to, we had a strategy session of our board, just, you know, we do this sort of long period kind of planning stuff. You know, obviously you've got to take a view on where you're doing the cycle. If you're going to call yourself a counter cyclical investor, there's no point. You've got to take stands, right? Um, and you essentially heard our stand in some of what we've talked about today. Um, but it was funny that, you know, for some of the feedback that came around the table was that this isn't economics we're studying, is it? It's like, it's, this is behavioral science. Yeah. So that, that, that's the, as you say, is the crux of it. Um, well, look, um, Brian, love catching up with you always. Um, love the bit before we started shooting and, and, and love what we talked about during. So, um, come back on a bit more regularly. Six months is, it's, it's, it's unfair. That we don't hear from six you. months is like in our investment time frame like that's this is the blink of the eye brian this isn't about you it's about your shareholders <laughs> and your and the baying crowds who want to hear more from you so if things are changing if things are changing that fast something is going wrong <laughs> okay okay well we'll see you when, when we see you more often than that, you don't need to hear us hear from us more often than that it just means that things are just doing what they're supposed to do Good. Okay, so well, um, thanks for catching up today. We'll see you soon, okay? Great chat and talk soon.